0: bear with me while I get myself organised up here. All right. Oh, that was loud. I'm going to show you a a picture. It's a trivia competition as we start. Uh, You've got to tell me what movie this is from. What movie is that picture from? Anyone other than Reese? What movie? What movie is that from? It's from The Matrix. There you go. Uh, it was that was the movie of the nineteen nineties. Uh, it came out in nineteen ninety nine, uh, which was sort of my brief window of my golden age of movies uh, because that was the period where I had a job and I didn't have children. Uh, so I had a job, so I had money, I could go to the movies, and I didn't have children, so I could go to the movies. So. Uh, <laughs> So, that's why, if you ever wonder why my references to movies aren't from any time in the last 16 years, you, you, you know why. But anyway, who's, who's seen the movie? The, the Oh, there you go, it's more relevant than I thought, there you go. Uh, but it was the movie of the 90s and especially, it was the movie that movie nerds like to quote. I didn't, I didn't actually like this movie, but you couldn't not like this movie at that time because movie nerds would always just quote it at you. And the line they would quote over and over again is the line up there, which is, do you want to take the blue pill or do you want to take the red pill? Uh, And that was where Morpheus, this really doesn't matter, but anyway, Morpheus, (laughs) Lawrence Fishburne's character, who I always thought was Samuel L. Jackson, but actually is Lawrence Fishburne, but anyway, uh, I'm sure I'm not alone there. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character, he offers Neo, Keanu Reeves, the choice, Do do you want to take the blue pill? to take the red pill and that's because the basic premise of the movie, I mean, you've had 20 years to see it, so I'm not, the, the basic premise of the movie was that reality wasn't real, that this world we're living in was actually not the real world and so he says, if you take the blue pill, I think it was the blue pill, if you take the blue pill, then you can just go on living happily in this world that's not real and just not understand anything but if you take the red pill, you'll understand reality. As it's meant to be. Uh, but that idea that there is a reality beyond our sort of current and common experience, it's actually a really common idea in the books we read, isn't it? And the, the, uh, the movies we watch. It's, it's the idea of Harry Potter. Is there is a, a reality beyond the reality we're living. Uh, it's the idea of Alice going down the rabbit hole into, into the wonderland, you, you know. It's the idea of the kids falling into the board game or if you're into the modern version, the computer game in, in Jumanji, you know, or the great one, it's walking through the wardrobe and then discovering there is another world out the back of the wardrobe where there are, is a witch and there's a lion and there's all those things going on. Now, often, to be very frank, uh, those stories are written about taking drugs. That is basically where most of those, Alice in Wonderland, I don't know why we read it to our kids, it is a story about drug-taking, The writer ate mushrooms and then wrote a story about the mushrooms he saw after he ate mushrooms. So, they're either about taking drugs or, funnily enough, this is the weirdness of it, they're about Christianity. So, they're either about taking drugs or they're a metaphor for Christianity. It's amazing how many of those stories are written by Christians. So, the the obvious one is Narnia, they're going through the wardrobe, that sort of thing. And the Christian ones, not the drug ones, the Christian ones are trying to capture that idea that we talked about last week. They're trying to capture that idea that to understand ourselves and to understand our world properly, we need to actually realize that we don't naturally see the world right, that we see it wrongly, and we need to come and understand the world God's way. We need to see the world through God's. Perspective. But unlike in all those books and unlike in all those movies, God's reality is not some big mystery that's hidden from you unless you happen to stumble on a wardrobe in a in a big English country mansion or or, or a mystery that you, you must take a pill to understand. No, God has come and made it absolutely clear because He has come into the world and revealed Himself in our Lord Jesus. And so you don't take a pill. Or walk through a wardrobe to discover God's reality, you come to Jesus. That's what you do. And, as we saw last week, you repent as you turn away from your old way of thinking, your old way of living and you turn towards trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus and allowing Jesus to set your worldview, to allow Jesus to explain to you, to show to you reality. And so, the moment we do that, the moment we repent and believe in Jesus, we become a Christian. That, that is the most important day in any person's life, far more important than all the other big days you, you think of. The biggest moment is that big decision where we say, I am going to repent, I'm going to turn away from my old way of thinking and I'm going to trust in Jesus. That is the fundamental change of direction. I have decided at that point, I've turned away from my old way to a new way. But unlike in the movies, you don't just take a red pill, I'm going to get rid of that now, you don't just take a red pill and then suddenly you understand everything from God's perspective. That's not how it works. Again, we saw this last week. No, it takes time for our thinking and for our conscience and for our heart and for our gut feel, it takes time for all of those things to actually get rid of our old way of thinking and be brought into line with God's Word and with God's mind, and God's heart, and God's gut feel. And so, the big application from last week, and I hope you do remember this, as Christians, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we must devote ourselves to God's Word. We must devote ourselves to meditating daily on God's Word. We must devote ourselves to studying it together, so that we can bring our heart into line with God's heart. We can bring our mind into line with God's mind. That's what we focused on last week. Now, on lots of issues, it is really, really easy to understand God's view because there are lots of issues where the Bible just addresses it directly. So, I said last week, don't lie. If you want to know what the Bible says about lying, there it is, don't. There's the Bible. You, you understand God's view on the matter of truth. Don't commit adultery, love your wife, raise your children to know and love the Lord Jesus, don't get drunk, so, 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 in one sense, those things are easy. In another sense, they're not easy. They're not easy to live it out, you see, because again, like we talked about last week, we're still impacted by sin and, and so often, even though God's Word speaks clearly, we don't want to follow it and we don't want to do what God says, so we struggle with it. But, but in that other sense, where God's Word dress, addresses something directly, then in, in one sense, it's easy to know what you're meant to think, as a Christian, easy to know what you're meant to do. Now, that's great, but there's a problem with that. I'm sure you can see what it is. Actually, I think there's two problems, there's probably more. The first is, God's Word doesn't directly address every issue you face and every decision you make. There's just a reality that you can't find a Bible verse about lots of the decisions you make, especially decisions in the modern world. So, So, for example, should you watch that TV show, I won't name it, you can insert TV show of choice, should you, should you watch that TV show? The Bible does not have anything to say about TV directly, because TV didn't exist when the Bible was written. But, does that mean the Bible doesn't have anything to say about what you watch on television? Of course not. you need to draw together other relevant teaching to make a godly, wise decision. Or the current example, In New South Wales, that you can't avoid in the newspapers and so forth at the moment, abortion. That there is no direct verse in the Bible on abortion. It's not one of the Ten Commandments, at least not directly. Does that mean the Bible has nothing to say about it? Again, I hope you say, of course not, it has lots to say on it. But that means you you, you can't just treat God's word like a textbook where you're just going to turn and find your answer to every situation you face. But the second problem is that even when God's Word does speak on an issue very, very clearly, if our mind is still shaped by the world's way of thinking, we will always struggle to accept God's Word. We'll certainly never accept it joyfully, we will always resent it, we'll always struggle with it and more than that, we'll do what, sadly, Christians have done for 2,000 years, we'll just try and be clever and work out why it doesn't apply to us and why it doesn't say what we think it says because we won't want to obey God's Word even when we know what it says very clearly. That's why, for those two reasons, that's why we need to have the Bible shape our whole way of thinking. Now, one way God's Word does that is just by changing our minds and changing our hearts bit by bit as we read it. So, that's what I called on us to do last week, just spend time in God's Word, Meditate on it every day, like we read in Psalm 119 last week. Join together with others in your Gospel team, reading God's Word. And and that, over time, just brings our heart and our mind into line with God's. It's how we sort of get God's vibe, if I can use another movie from my era. But in addition to that, we need to do something else. We need to learn the Bible's theology. We need to learn biblical doctrine. We need to have locked in our brain the key Bible truths that help us understand the world God's way. See, our brain just has to have some set beliefs that are unchangeable, that that are the scaffolding, if you like, that then when we learn anything else, either from the Bible or anywhere else, we judge it through those truths that are set in stone. So, in my street at the moment, because every block is really, really long, it seems like every house is building a granny flat on the back. It's like everyone's decided, I'm going to make some money by selling off half my thing and having a granny flat on the back. And they go up really, really quickly, but if you watch, what do they do first? They lay a concrete foundation. Then, they build a hardwood scaffold, if you like. And then, before you know it, the bricks go on it. But if the foundation is not good, well, the bricks will all just fall down. And if the scaffold, if the the timber is not hardwood and isn't put in place properly, well, the bricks just all fall apart. Well, it's the same with you and your mind, and me and my mind. We have to have the foundation right. And what's the foundation? It's Jesus Christ. It's, It's believing in Jesus. That's the foundation. But then we have to have the scaffold right the basic things we believe that we then test everything else against and we build everything else around. And that's what I want us to talk about tonight. See, I said last week, I can't answer every issue for you Uh, and after that, last week, lots of people, more feedback slips than I've had in a while, actually, lots of people put in feedback slips where they said, can we, can you cover this issue? What about this issue? And and can you talk about this issue? And and what about this? I'd like to know what to do here as well And, and what about that? I'm sorry to disappoint all of those people, I'm sorry to disappoint you all, I can't deal with every issue you've got to face, I just can't, I haven't got enough sermons. Next week, unless I change my mind, uh, next week, I'm going to do that for the issue of abortion, okay? So, I'm going to just go through and and give a whole biblical view of what we should think about abortion but this week, I want to lay the groundwork for how we need to think about any of the big social issues of our time. So, I think the big issues of our time are things like abortion and human sexuality and euthanasia and all those sort of topics and I want to put in place and help us grasp and understand the key underpinning biblical doctrines that help us understand and accept God's view on those topics. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about three key truths tonight and each time I'm going to show it from the Bible, then I'm going to show you how it's different to how our world thinks uh, and then I'm going to draw out some implications for our thinking on some of those big issues, that's what we're going to do, all right? So, you will need, you always need your Bible... But I'm going to put most of the Bible verses up here tonight. The thing you'll have, find most helpful is having your outline out. If you don't have an outline, can you put your hand up and Troy or Patrick will get one to you? Wake your hand up if you don't have an outline, if you didn't get one on the way in, if you sneaked past the welcomers. All right, very good. So, key doctrine number one, up on the screen and on your handout and it's that God created us. That is the truth that underpins everything else. Or another way of putting that, God is the Creator and we are the creatures. So, that is the very starting point of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, should be said, Genesis 1 and 2 are not a science textbook. Uh, so, I think Christians can differ on questions of science did God use evolution as part of the process as He, as he created things? Uh, was it six days as we know it or, or, or did it cover a, a much longer period than that? We can debate those things another time. Uh, you can go have, come and have a coffee with me, we can talk about it all you like. But I just want to tell you, what Genesis 1 makes very clear is however you understand it, you have to understand God did it. God actively created this world. That is non negotiable. But not just the world, God created us, human beings. So, from our reading in Genesis chapter 1, before verse 27, it says, So God created man, he created them male and female. Now, that verse there already answers lots of current questions about gender and those sort of things as well, that actually our gender, male and female, is, is determined by God and is part of how God created us, but that's a, that's a much bigger topic for another day. But I want to say to you, there is no more basic truth than that one. That this truth must always be the bedrock of our thinking. God created us. God is the crea- Creator, we are the creatures. But now, I want to think, what, what are the implications of knowing that? What are the implications of knowing that? Now, there's, there's hundreds, there's hundreds of implications. But the first one I want to draw out is, I think it means that our lives have meaning. It means our lives have a purpose. We exist for God's benefit. We exist to glorify our Creator. We were made to please Him. We are not just a random collection of cells. Now, think about this, and I've already said it in a way, what's the alternative to this truth? The alternative to this truth, and what many in our society believe, is that there is no God. Or, if there is a God, He is distant and unknowable and plays no part in day-to-day life. Now, if you really believe that, if you really believe there is no God and you are a random collection of cells and I am a random collection of cells, then that is horribly depressing. If you actually take it through to its logical conclusion because it means there is no meaning in life. There can't be meaning in life. We're just, a, we're random. We're an accident. Other than maybe, get as much happiness out of however many years you can get before you die. That, that's, that's really what you can come up with. For meaning, tries to invent ways to find meaning. Find meaning in your career. Experience as much of this world as you can before you die. or or at the very best, make a better world for our children. That's how you'll find meaning. And then, is it any wonder that as our society has moved away from belief in God, is it any wonder that so many people are lost and so many people just feel hopeless? Is it any wonder that our world thinks euthanasia is the answer to human suffering? Because really, if there's nothing else, why would I suffer? That's not happy. There can't be good in that. Because if there is no God and this is all there is, then what's the point? That is horribly depressing. I'm sorry on a Sunday night. But the thing I want to say to you is that is not you, and that is not us. If you are someone who knows Jesus and knows the God of the universe, we know that life is a wonderful gift from God. We know that we have a purpose, we know that God has made us to live to please Him. And we know that what pleases Him most fundamentally is us recognizing and believing in His Son, who He sent. Now, there's another implication of this truth, that God created us. It also means that there are objective moral standards. There are right things and wrong things and we don't get to decide them, the Creator gets to decide them. you know, I actually praise God that most atheists are incredibly inconsistent. I praise God that most atheists are not logical, even though they probably call me illogical. And even though they say there is no God, they live like there probably is a God. Because, if you think about this, if there is no God, why is anything wrong or anything right? Logically speaking, if there is no God, why is anything wrong why is anything right? If I'm just a genetic accident and you're just a genetic accident, the result of six billion years working on a hot pool of water somewhere on the earth, if that's what we are, then what do I care what happens to you? And what do you care what happens to me? Isn't it just about making me happy and perhaps making my family happy? Isn't it just about keeping my gene pool strong? That's, that's actually the logical extension of atheism. So, really, if I'm a consistent atheist, I will walk that line between doing just what I can to maximise my happiness without getting into trouble. That's an atheist ethic, if you will. Because why would I not lie if I can get away with it? Why would I not cheat if I can get away with it? Why would I not steal if I can get away with it? There is no set morality. It's interesting, the top ethicist in the world is an Australian guy, Peter Singer, who's heard of peter singer australian guy he's a lecturer at harvard in america Uh, he is the top atheist and i like him i disagree with just about everything he says but uh, but i like him because he is logically consistent he wrote a paper and i was like this is actually really quite hard this so please i'm just sort of warning you in advance what he says he wrote a say he takes atheism to its logical conclusion and he is an atheist He wrote a paper saying, if we agree that we can abort a handicapped child before it's born, which is what our government's just voted in, if we agree that that is ethically okay to discover that the child you're carrying is handicapped and so abort it, if we agree that's okay, he said, surely we can kill a newborn child if we discover that it's handicapped after it's born. Now, I hope that appalls you. I hope you just say, that cannot be, how could anyone believe that? And that's what people rightly said when he released this paper. They said, no, that is not right, that that cannot be right, we must not do that, it's appalling. But other than Christians, they couldn't answer why. He said, well, why not? And they didn't have an answer, because he's just being logically consistent. It's interesting, someone told me this morning, I haven't had a chance to Check this out. Someone told me this morning that he was talking about euthanasia and then his mother got sick and someone said, well, why don't you apply what you've said about other people to your mother? And he said, it's different when it's your mother. You see the point? It's different then when I know the person. That's why, as I said before, I praise God most people are inconsistent at that point because our world would be even more awful if people said, lived by what they say they believe. People say there is no God, but in their heart, they think some things are right and some things are wrong. And actually, that is because deep in their heart, they know there is a God, as Romans chapter 2 tells us. They just have no logical base for thinking there is right and wrong. That's why in in the end, the best our world can come up with is, Do what you can to be happy without hurting anyone else. That's a terribly sad way to live. But that's the best, that's what they want to teach children in ethics. Do what you can to be happy without hurting anyone else. And it's especially sad when you realise that all the things you think are going to make you happy in this world, don't do it. And so, when people get the bigger house, they say, oh, but I'm still not happy. And they move on to the second wife or husband, they go, but I'm still not happy. And they move on to the next holiday and I still feel empty but again I want to say to you that is not us that is not you if you know the God of the universe we know there is right and there is wrong and God decides it so fundamental truth number one God created us which means our lives have meaning and secondly God decides right and wrong let's move to key doctrine number two which is that the God who created us loves us and so God's commands are good and right. I think most Christians actually have no, str- no trouble uh, believing the first key doctrine I've talked about tonight. I think most, if you don't believe that, it's because you're not yet a Christian. So, so, I don't think most Christians struggle with that one but I think most Christians struggle with this one at points and that's because we buy the lie that the world tells us and the devil tells us which is that God is a killjoy. That actually, God's laws are sort of arbitrary and they're just designed to stop us enjoying life. That's the point of God's laws. Uh, And and so, that is what the devil tells us. The devil says, God is a killjoy. The devil says, God's laws are, are just designed to stop you having as good a time as you can. And then he tells us, there are no consequences for breaking God's law. Flick open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I'm sure you all know the story, but, uh, and I'm not going to go through it in detail, but just so you've got it in front of you as I talk about it. So, you know how it works. You know that God created a whole garden for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And He said, You can, incredibly gracious, our God. He said, You can eat from every tree in the garden, except that one, except that one, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is not good for you to eat from that tree. But then, Genesis chapter 3, the devil comes along and he twists God's incredible generosity and he makes God sound stingy. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, that's not what God said at all. God said we can eat from any tree but just not that one. If we touch that one, we die. Then the devil twists it again, no, 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 you won't die. No, no, God wouldn't do that. There, there, there are no consequences for disobeying God's unfair laws because God's a killjoy. God doesn't want what's best for you, the only reason He doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because He doesn't want you to be like Him. And so, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and sin and death enter our world. But that conversation in Genesis chapter 3 didn't end there. It was the first example of a conversation that goes on in every human being's brain, every day of all of history. Where the devil and the world say to us, God is a killjoy. God doesn't want what's best for you. God's just stopping you, enjoying your life. And there is no consequence for breaking God's law. Whenever we think those things, which we will all think at different points, whenever we think those things, we need to do one thing. We need to go back and look again at the cross of Christ. Whenever we think God doesn't love us, God doesn't want what's best for me, whenever we're tempted to think that, go and look again at the cross of Christ. We need to say, hang on, I know God loves me because He sent His Son to die in my place. Our readings from Romans chapter 5, earlier on, verse 8 says this, it says, God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the most wonderful verse, isn't it? Because it's not God loves us when we deserve it. When did He send Jesus to die for our sins? While we were still sinners, while we were still thumbing our noses at Him. God loves you, and you know it because of the death of Jesus. God's love is proven once and for all at the cross of Christ. And it's for that reason that we know that God's Word is good. So, when God's Word says, don't do that, that is because it is not good for us to do it. And it's not good for society that we do it, because God has, you're not the centre of the universe, remember that. That's another great truth to remember. God has the whole world in mind. And when God's Word encourages us to do something, it's because that is what is best for us. And it's what is best for our society. Now, it might be what is best for us from an eternal perspective. Sometimes, obeying God's Word leads to suffering in the here and now but it's what is best for us eternally. In the short term, we might face pain and suffering but God's love has a much longer end point than that. God's love means, ultimately, His way is best for us. Now, please get this right because this truth is often misused. You often hear people say, God is love and therefore, if there is a command in Scripture that I think is unloving, we don't have to obey it. That was the whole same-sex marriage debate. Some people who called themselves Christians said, I'm a Christian and I'm going to vote for same-sex marriage because God is love. So, how could He be against anything that I think is love? What's the problem with that? It means you are just deciding what you think love is, rather than letting the Creator decide right and wrong, love and hate. So, now, the way it works is, God is love, God loves us, we know that through the death of Jesus. So, that means His Word is loving, His Word is what is best for us. So, if I read God's Word and I struggle with it, that means I've got to change my definition of what is love and what is loving and what is the right thing to do, because I've got the problem, not God. So that's the second key truth and that must underpin all our thinking. God loves us so His words and His commands are good. Oh, I've gone too far. There we go. Now, those two truths just have to be the key bedrock of our scaffolding. I think that's a mixed metaphor but you, you know what I mean, you get my point point. and I hope you can see this, I hope you see it already. With, just with those two key truths locked into your brain, you actually know how to answer most of the questions our modern world throws at us. Just with those two key truths locked in our brain, you are actually equipped to think Christianly about many, many topics that come our way. But the reality is, we've still got about 100 other parts of the scaffold to build in our brain, if we're really going to be equipped to deal with all the issues life will throw at us. And that's why, at this point, I want to pause and I want to plead with you. I use that word advisedly, plead. This is my ad break before the last part of today's sermon. Uh, Last week, I called on us to devote ourselves to reading the Bible on our own and with our brothers and sisters in gospel teams. This week, I want to plead with you to learn biblical doctrine. Too many of us, by us I mean people here, too many of us I talk to and we have such a flimsy scaffold our brains and so when you read stuff on the internet we go, can that be true? I don't don't know because our scaffold's not set in place well enough. When I went to Kenya a few years ago and I was walking around Nairobi and you you, you just get shocked that they build buildings and they use bamboo for the scaffolding and so the bamboo bends like this and so the building bends like that and then, really, really sad, often the buildings collapse and people die as as they're making them and so on. That is what many modern Christians' doctrinal scaffold is like. It's bent, it's weak, it's like bamboo because they've never actually taken the time to learn biblical doctrine. That's why, back in term one, I remember we shut down all gospel teams in term one and we we did the courses and several of you, I know, did the the doctrine course with me and I hope you found that helpful Uh, but many of you weren't able to do that, you were doing other ones. Uh, So, I want to ask you, unless you're someone who thinks you've got it all together and you've got a great scaffold, I want to ask you to do something for me before the end of the year. Uh, and and I'm, so I'm asking you because it's good for you and then I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you and saying, just do it for me, even if you don't think you have to, you know what I mean? And that's what I, this is what I want you to do, I want you to read one of these two books before the end of the year. I should put it up on the screen. I want you to read one of these two books before the end of the year unless you've read them sometime in the last five years, all right? I want you to read one of these two books before the end of the year, they're not that thick, they're okay. This is how good this book is, look at how many people I've read that with, look at it, it's falling apart, it's all, all gone, you, you know, uh, that's the, what the modern version looks like. Now, what are the two books? That one, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, okay? And what it is, is about 20 talks he gave on Christian doctrine and if you're the sort of person who, who learns better that way, then read that one. This one, Know the Truth by Bruce Mill, it's more like a textbook, you know, like goes through different topics of what the Bible says about different topics and gives you Bible references and so forth. So if your brain works more that way, do that one. But I want to ask you to do that. Before the end of this year, read one of those two books. If you're not much of a reader, find three friends And get together and make a mini book group, where you you force yourselves, once a fortnight, to read a chapter and talk about it together. But I'll ask you to commit to doing that, because it's good for you, but even if you're not absolutely convinced it's good for you, do it out of love for me, just to make me happy. There you go. But build that scaffold in your head, because otherwise, you are just not able to think Christianly in this world and you'll be blown around by every wind of false teaching, By everything you read on the internet, by whatever, have a biblical doctrine shape your brain. That's what I want to ask you to do. But now, as the last part of today's talk, I want to cover one last key part of our scaffold. And I think this is the key doctrine that we need to have locked in our brain to think through or really grasp God's view on the issues of our age. Like I said before abortion, euthanasia, human sexuality. So, in a way, I'm sort of laying the groundwork for next week's talk. This is like point one of next week's talk. And so, key doctrine number three is that every human being is made in the image of God. Let's go back to the very beginning at Genesis chapter 1. God has created the earth, He's created the sky, He's created the oceans, He's created the land, He's created all these animals, then He turns to humanity and this is what He says, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So, God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, I could preach 10 talks on those two verses and I would not have fully plumbed their depths. And we could talk for hours about what it means that you, every person here, are made in the image of God or God's likeness. We could talk about how it means that God made us alone to have knowledge, how God made us alone to relate to Him and actually be able to relate to God as our Father, not the other animals, just human beings. And we could talk about how before sin ended the world, God made us to be immortal. I find that mind-blowing, frankly. Uh, but before sin entered the world, God made us to live forever. We're not meant to die. But the key point I want to draw out today is that it shows us that humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. See, the God who created the stars and the moon and elephants and dolphins and orangutans and, and, and everything else, He made all of that and then He said, but these ones alone I am making in My image. Human beings alone I am making in my image, which is why all people are valuable to God. God did not just make white people in His image, as some societies have tried to claim. He didn't just make intelligent people in His image. He didn't just make people with perfect eyesight in His image. He didn't just make people it would be convenient to bring up, let the hearer understand, in His image. All people are made in the image of God. Now, that theme just runs through the whole Bible. That is the basis of everything about how God treats humanity. This is why, as I said, the Gospel is not just for white people or for Middle Eastern people, which was the original group the Gospel went to. God wants people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue to come and find salvation in Jesus. Even when God chose one people, the Jews, to be his special possession in the old testament what did he say to them he said through you i want to bless everyone else but if we bring this down to individuals this means that each person is valuable to god there's a wonderful verse in the book of james where james is talking about how we use our tongue and he says sometimes you use your tongue so you speak for good you praise god you sing songs here at church about how wonderful god is But then you use the very same tongue, you you walk out of here, you've been praising God with your tongue and then you walk out to your car and you swear at the guy who who pulls out in front of you and then you realise it's the minister in your pocket. No, you don't. don't. (laughs) Then James says this, look what James says, I think this verse is incredible. He says, we praise our Lord and Father with it, our tongue, and then we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. I hope you can see his point. His point is, when you curse another person, when you speak ill of another person, when you belittle them because they're different to you, you are cursing the image of God. You are belittling the image of God. And if we should not curse or belittle someone made in the image of God, then we certainly should not harm them and we certainly should not kill them. And that is the Bible's basic understanding. The Bible's basic understanding is that all human life is inherently valuable. That's why we are free to kill animals. Christians should not become radical environmentalists. There might be reasons to care for the environment but in the end, animals are for us to kill and eat and to make leather shoes with and leather belts with and clothe ourselves. That's why God created human beings above the animals. We can take animals' lives but we are not free to take human lives. And so, from the very beginning of God's law, what was the sixth commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Do not murder. Do not murder. <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting James <laughs> chapter 3, verse 9. At this, this point. It says nothing about cursing mobile phones. But God loves you. Now, go back. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, do not murder. That's just not a random law. That's because how could you take, how could you kill someone who is born, who is made in the image of God? Now, there are times where God gives us the right to take life. So, Christians are not pacifists. In a just war, killing is not wrong. So, the Second World War, when Australian people went and fought Germany and Japan and other places, they were right to do that. A just war, God's Word, allows killing but we should be really concerned that only just wars are fought. God gives the state the right to take a life as a punishment for murder, I think precisely because life is so valuable. So, if someone takes a human life, uh, the, the the punishment needs to fit the crime. I see many Christians misunderstand this. The Bible is not against capital punishment. Don't just say, I don't believe in capital punishment because I'm a Christian, that just says you haven't read your Bible. Now, the only reason I oppose capital punishment is because of another doctrine that's a key part of the scaffold, which is the doctrine of human sin and I know that people tell lies and people make false accusations, so there is a reality, people abuse power and innocent people get convicted. That's why I oppose capital punishment. While if we have the, the chance that they might be found innocent and there might be lies, we, we don't want to take that drastic step. But the big point is, because all people are made in the image of God, our basic starting point is that we don't have the right to end life, other than where God's Word tells us. Which is, of course, the fundamental reason why Christians are so opposed to abortion. I'll deal with complicating factors next week, I'll deal with other issues and the nuances, you know, what about a a woman's right to, to, to choose what happens to her own body, what about extreme cases? But the fundamental point, the starting point is not complicated for a Christian. If that baby, and this is a question of science, if that baby inside the person is another human being with a separate genetic makeup to his or her mother and again, that is scientifically what a fetus is, then no human being has the right to decide that a person made in God's image should not have the opportunity to live. That's what the Bible says. However inconvenient it will be to raise them, however much we think their quality of life may not be as good as it could be, we do not have the right to stop or to take the life of a person made in the image of God. That's the starting point but more on that very hard topic next week. Because this doctrine has implications way beyond murder and way beyond those questions. See, it's because all people are made in the image of God that human beings have rights. You see, the very notion that all people have rights, not just white people, not just landowners, not just wealthy people, not just able-bodied people, that has only come from a Christian worldview. It hasn't come from anywhere else. If you study history, you see that. I often like to answer back to atheists and say, if you believe in atheism, go and live in a country that hasn't been shaped by Christian morality and tell me how you find it. See, if you study history, you see it is Christians who have led the way in the care for the poor. It's Christians who've led the way in the care for the widow, the care for the orphan. It's Christians who've led the way in the care for disabled people. Now, we Christians haven't always got it right, Christians are sinners, like everyone else, that have made horrible decisions at points. But it's because of the basic belief that all people are made in the image of God, that we care for all people. And we believe all people have inherent basic rights. And of course, most fundamentally, that is why we want all people to hear about Jesus, isn't it? See, even, I find this funny, even as we speak out against these current issues, even as Christians speak out against abortion even as Christians speak out against same-sex marriage and homosexual practice, even as Christians speak out against whatever it is, as Christians, we don't speak in judgment, even if we're heard that way. We say, these things are wrong. These things are wrong. If If you've been involved in any of these things, they are wrong and they grieve God, but we have also done things that grieve God. And so, even if you've done these things, you are still made in the image of God. You are still valuable to God. You are still loved by God. He loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. So, come and find the forgiveness we've found by repenting and believing in Jesus. That's the message we hold out to our world. And we hold that out to everyone, no matter what they've done, because like us, they are made in the image of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us all that we need in your scriptures to understand ourselves and you and our world correctly. And we pray that we might take the opportunity to really shape our mind and bring it into line with your word. Help us to devote ourselves to your scriptures and help us to commit ourselves and learn those key doctrines that are the very foundation of how we think. But Father, most of all, we thank you for the truth of those doctrines, that you did create us so our life does have meaning, that you do love us and you've shown that most wonderfully by sending your son so we know your, your word is what is best for us and we thank you that we are made in your image and we pray that we would treat all people as people made in your image and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.